now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode 11 of our drug season, Just Science visits Atlanta for the 45th annual ASCLAD Symposium to visit with Dr. Barry Logan, Senior Vice President of Forensic Science Initiatives and Chief of Forensic Toxicology at National Medical Services to discuss the convergence of drivers of the national opioid epidemic. Follow along to learn what's in these novel compounds and why it matters to illicit drug manufacturers, regulatory agencies, and local crime labs. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan, your host with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. We are now at the American Society of Crime Laboratory Directors meeting in Atlanta in late May. And this is a podcast that will be released in conjunction with some uh, opioids webinars that the FTCOE is doing with the eminent Dr. Barry Logan. And Barry is uh, somebody who should be well familiar to many of you out in the forensic science community because he is certainly considered one of the preeminent experts on not only opioids, but also forensic toxicology more broadly. Barry, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, John. So this is obviously something that's really hitting the headlines now. A lot of people have now recognized that there is a serious problem with respect to the deaths associated with opioids and that uh, opioids isn't about heroin anymore. From your perspective, uh, you know, fentanyl's been around a long time. Carfentanil actually isn't from yesterday. Do you think this is something that has been a long time coming or why do you think at this point in history we're seeing the kinds of of expansion in uh, opioid deaths and the variety of opioids that are out there being abused? So I think there's really uh, been a convergence in terms of a couple of different uh, drivers towards what we're, we're facing today as uh, forensic scientists and people in our profession who are challenged by the growth in opioid use. The first is, for many years, we were, forensic toxicology was fairly predictable. Uh, we had a range of compounds we knew we were going to have to test for and likely to find in our cases. Uh, every year, there would be a few new drugs that were coming out of the pharmaceutical industry, mostly anticonvulsants or new antidepressants. And so we'd gotten into kind of a comfortable uh, cadence of what we expected to, to see and the, the amount of effort we had to put into being ready to test for new compounds. But back in about 2008, uh, we saw the f appearance of the first synthetic cannabinoids. And those were the first custom-designed illicit uh, drugs that we had seen as a new family of drugs or a new class of drugs in forensic casework. First, they were kind of a novelty. People thought, well, this is kind of something that's going to come and go. Is it legal? Is it not legal? Is anybody going to be interested in those? But what we found was that there was a huge amount of interest in the drug using community, in part because they were novel compounds, there was some cachet to that, but also because they were substances that were not going to be detectable in routine drug tests. So the net result of that was that a cat and mouse game developed between regulating authorities, between the DEA who scheduled compounds and the manufacturers of those compounds, where every time 
uh, something new appeared, we developed a method for, to test for it, uh, we documented adverse outcomes, the DEA took that information and was able to schedule it, but as soon as it was scheduled there was a new compound on the block. It's interesting that in that time period because that's right after where uh, some of the uh, synthetic uh, labs doing methamphetamine were doing business. It's almost like some of this community got used to the idea of, hey, you know, synthetic compounds are really cool, <laughs> you know, and, and then they started to experiment and, and decide that maybe the synthetic cannabinoids and other compounds might be also of, of interest to them. Well, I, I think the, these new class synthetic drugs in general are, require a different level of complexity in terms of design and manufacture than methamphetamine, and methamphetamine manufacture was mostly domestic and then moved to Mexico. But with the synthetics, once that process was in place where a compound could be designed, it was scheduled, a new compound would, could be made to replace it, people were no longer restricted just to cannabinoids. And so they took that model, and then the next thing that, uh, the next class of drugs that appeared were the cathinones, so the stimulants mm -hmm. and hallucinogens. And the same pattern developed. Then about uh, four years ago, we saw a similar thing with novel benzodiazepines. So people were taking the basic benzodiazepine structure, finding some reports of other benzodiazepines in the patent literature that were never made, modifying those. And then that whole model shifted over to opioids, in particular fentanyl analogs, but some other important classes of drugs starting in late 2014. Mm -hmm. So that, that's kind of how the, the model rolled out and how it came to be a factor in the proliferation of opioids. And from a pure regulatory perspective, DEA is still kind of uh, lagging a little bit. I know in Europe they're trying to regulate by functional group. DEA is starting to move in that direction now, and at least that will solve some of their problems maybe. <laughs> yeah, so the DEA has a number of tools uh, to do uh, scheduling. They can do emergency scheduling when something appears and it's a significant public health threat. But to permanently schedule those compounds, they are currently required to develop a large portfolio of evidence of harm or potential dangerousness of these new compounds. And there's multiple levels of review in different agencies in the federal government that that has to go through. Interestingly, at the end of uh, last year, the DEA published a new strategy of what's called core structure scheduling for fentanyls, and that took effect in February. So it basically says that it looks at the fentanyl molecule, it breaks it out into four uh, or five domains, and says any compound that has those domains modified to whatever extent, still considered a member of the fentanyl drug class mm -hmm. and is therefore scheduled. So that was one action that and was able to schedule as a class everything we knew about that was uh, in the illicit market that was being abused and also anticipated hundreds of other possible fentanyl derivatives and scheduled them all as part of the same action. And I think that did have an impact on the rate of proliferation of these analogs. Because if you have a good enough design of that uh, approach, then pretty much any analog that's going to be useful out there in, for, for abuse purposes is going to be included in that. I mean, so your view is that, that the approach is broad enough to be able to meet that need? It's not going to be easy for the illegal market to, or the illicit market to get around that design. It's certainly not going to stop people from making novel compounds and potentially very potent compounds, but the difference is they're going to be clearly illegal from the point in time at which they're first manufactured. What we're seeing more of now is people importing precursors for some of these uh, compounds. So the focus doesn't seem to be as much on completely novel fentanyl analogs as much as it is on different ways to make them more efficiently and to get the precursors into the country, because many of the precursors 
don't fall under that core structure scheduling. Mm -hmm. and it's like you're importing the pieces of a puzzle and once you get them into the United States, you put them together and you, you have something that's uh, scheduled, but it at least gets you past the barrier of uh, importation. So, yeah, one of the things that's odd here, and that is that, you know, part of this arms race that's been going on between DEA and the illegal markets is that there seems like to be an incentive to go to ever more concentrated and more dangerous materials. I mean, I look at how dangerous fentanyl is, and the analogs are much, much more dangerous than even fentanyl itself. And I can't imagine somebody having being such a fool. <laughs> it's very different from the crack epidemic. Eventually, that kind of like, it seemed like people kind of, who, who were abusers sort of backed off from it a little bit just because of the sheer danger that they saw in it. And here, that doesn't seem to be happening nearly as much. No, I think there's, that's an interesting question. I think there's a couple of things that uh, drive that. One is that for the most part, people buying these drugs at the street level don't know what they're buying. It could be anything in that white powder. Mm. And we've worked with some groups who interact a lot with people who are overdosing in the emergency rooms who think they're buying heroin, but then when we test samples from them, they're actually taking fentanyl or fentanyl analogs. So from the process of the appearance of the material to how it cooks up to how it feels when they inject it, they have a tough time differentiating what they're taking. But the potency of it can be significantly greater. The other thing is when you have these very potent compounds, for somebody who's packaging these things, making dilutions of them, creating new powders, it's very difficult to dilute powders and to get the, the active material evenly distributed in the, in the powder. So you could buy a packet of heroin today, which contains uh, fentanyl analogs. You could buy it from the same dealer tomorrow, but it just has a lot more drug in it. And that increases both its potency and its toxicity. The third thing is that there is a perverse interest oftentimes on the part of people who use these drugs. When they hear that somebody almost died from this stuff, the thought is, well, that must be really good stuff. Uh, right. Where can I go get some of that? <laughs> sure. And to some extent, I believe that there's some uh, feeling among IV drug users that uh, with the availability of naloxone that there's kind of a safety net. So it's not that they uh, disregard the risk but they may take additional precautions so that if they do get something that's really potent or really toxic, uh, there's an opportunity for that to be reversed with naloxone. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, research going on now. In fact, RTI is doing some of it, looking at this whole idea of other places or ways for public intervention to occur such that uh, to reduce the harm basically associated with abuse, right? So it's there, you know, have people inject at the same time that there's naloxone around and unfortunately, a lot of the research is very mixed. Uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean get to a better outcome long term because they do push the envelope so much. Regardless, it just encourages, in some respects, people to take more dangerous materials. Yes, I think it's going to be situational, but I think if you are taking a substance and you know there's an antidote for it and you maybe are taking it in an environment where one person is not injecting and one person is kind of shepherding the, the group, you're going to be more comfortable taking it than if you didn't have that, uh, that safety net. So let's shift to the crime laboratory because all of this kind of thing that's happening out there in the world, you know, the crime laboratories are seeing it. They're seeing it in terms of the seizures that they're occurring and the seizures are, are themselves a, a, a major issue in terms of analysis and of course they're seeing it in toxicology as well and one of the issues that you, you mentioned is the whole mixture issue 
maybe we can just start with that, even though it's a complicated topic. And one of the examples that I'll give is that one of the folks we work with said that they've been looking at markets where people are selling stuff that's like herbal, but it's really synthetic cannabinoid, and that fair amount of those materials actually have fentanyl analogs of various sorts in them. And so there have been some reports of of people taking those kinds of, of things where they're even in what is at least a front of, a, of something that they could get that was they might think is legal and they're still getting those kinds of, of exposures. So in that sense you could a, a crime laboratory now is faced with the idea they could get something in the door which could have almost any mixture in it and that's a very difficult analytical problem just in and of itself. Yes, it is. It's a challenge on a number of levels. You mentioned different formulations of these drugs and them showing up in unexpected uh, media. One of the things that we and other labs have encountered is uh, drugs like fentanyl and their analogs being pressed into pills and tablets that are designed to look like oxycodone pills or uh, even Xanax pills, benzodiazepines, when the content is, uh, is an opioid. So in the past, labs very often used to do pill IDs. So if you, uh, you looked up in the uh, uh, drug handbook, the appearance of a pill is a round circular pill with scoring on one side and number on the other side, and you could say, well, that's a, an oxycodone uh, tablet. Mm-hmm. Now you can't make that assumption. So those pills have to be very carefully inspected and in many cases tested just to ensure that it's not a counterfeit uh, pill with something else in it because the, the scheduling could be different and the penalties associated with its uh, distribution could be different. So that's been one impact on labs. The other challenge is that we're very heavily reliant for routine drug cease drug chemistry on uh, databases and libraries, either that are provided by the manufacturers or that are provided by groups like Swig Drug um, or even some of the standards manufacturers. And if we see something in there that is a library match, then we're very comfortable in identifying it. But if it's a novel compound, we may recognize some of its characteristics based on the way it fragments in GCMS. So we know where we suspect it's related, but we just don't have uh, the tools in many labs to identify the absolute composition and structure of a brand new novel compound. Sure, yeah. So I, I'm thinking back to my days. I did a fair amount back in the 80s and 90s of GCMS, uh, especially of uh, simulants of chemical agents and things of that nature for different programs. And, and we were used to seeing things that you wouldn't expect. <laughs> all the time. And so you learned how to look at a, a spectrum and say, all right, this is what my theory is with respect to what the structure is that's that's causing this particular fragmentation pattern. But of course, that's not how a crime laboratory can operate very easily. I mean, they need to, there's throughput issues and it's kind of like, how do you know all of a sudden that this is the structure that you're going to actually be able to take into a court if you had to? Sure, there are. And one of the things that makes it additionally difficult is that so many of these things are so structurally closely related. They may be positional isomers, or they may have you know, an ethyl group instead of a methyl group somewhere, or there are uh, a switch, there's a butyl group in place of an ethyl and methyl group, so mm-hmm. the molecular weight is maybe identical to something you've seen before. So the differentiation of the isomers is an additional uh, challenge. And then periodically we get brand new things that, that are new drug classes. About three years ago, three and a half years ago, we started to see compounds that were basically being pirated from the 1970s and 1980s pharmaceutical uh, literature. Uh, the best known are the U47-700 series mm-hmm. of compounds. Nobody had ever seen these before in either the illicit market and they've never been uh, submitted for approval as pharmaceutical agents. So that required basically just first principles analysis of this isn't even like anything we've seen before, 
How do you mm -hmm. figure out what it is? I'm sorry, I don't, I'm not familiar with U47 compounds. What are those? So they're a series of compounds that were uh, invented and patented by the Upjohn company, that's where the U comes from, uh, mm -hmm. back in the late 1970s and early 80s. Uh, they're structurally unrelated to the opioid class, they're unrelated to the fentanyl class, but they do have new opioid agonist activity, so they are potent opioids. U47-700 appeared in uh, about late 2015, and it really proliferated at one point. It was probably the fourth or fifth most common opioid we were detecting in our casework, frequently mixed in, uh, you mentioned mixtures earlier, frequently mixed in with uh, furanyl fentanyl. So again, the DEA scrambled and collected information and scheduled that, and then we started to see its uh, decline. But we've subsequently seen U49-900, U48-800, and just in the last couple of weeks, we've identified two brand new uh, derivatives in that class that we've never seen before, methylene dioxy U47-700 and isopropyl U47-700. So it's clear that the drug designers and uh, the people who are ma making these substances for the illicit market are still looking for products that, that differentiate them. Sure. I mean, that's an extraordinarily complicated space in some respects, and I don't want to like compare too much, but you know, these are very sophisticated chemists. I mean, being able to do synthesis of these compounds is not straightforward even if you have the recipe that demonstrates something very different uh, than you know, your average marijuana grower coming in, <laughs> in the door that we might have had before. What would you suggest in terms of strategies for a forensic laboratory to be able to approach this problem generally? So it really requires exploration and availability of technology that we don't typically use for seized drug cases. In most laboratories, the approach is fairly straightforward. It's not many labs use TLC anymore, but most labs will start with a chemical color test, presumptive tests that have some utility in identifying many of the drug classes that we're most familiar with, but they become increasingly less helpful as you get uh, novel agents. So then right, the, the U47s the, probably wouldn't hit any color test in right, a crime or laboratory. Right, or yeah. certainly not produce anything that was a recognizable or diagnostic color change. Because the color tests are not based on the pharmacological activity of the drug. So just because this is an opioid-like substance doesn't mean it's going to give the same reaction as morphine would on a, on a chemical color test. Of course, yeah. So then the next step is typically GCMS, but then again we're relying on having those compounds in our library in order to be able to get a hit and to make the identification. So oftentimes these go into the, we know this is something but we don't know what it is pile, mm -hmm. and if the laboratory is lucky enough to have the resources to pursue those, uh, maybe they sit there until the field develops or until a manufacturer makes more standard reference materials or one of these uh, organizations adds it to their database and they say, oh yeah, I've seen that before, uh, go back and pull it out of the pile. But I think there's a real need for a more uh, aggressive analytical approach in these cases where you can triage them and uh, um, uh, use a tiered approach for analysis where these unknowns can go forward to other more advanced techniques that are more readily available now. High resolution mass spectrometry mm -hmm. will give you both accurate mass information, so you'll get the molecular formula. Uh, there are multiple fragmentation techniques available on the current time-of-flight platforms sure. uh, that will help you identify the structures of the fragments, and then you can put those fragments together either based on chemical first principles, but there's also software on many of those instruments now that help you assemble the molecule based on the identity of the fragments. So that's one way to find the actual structure of the compound. Sometimes it won't allow you to make differentiation of whether something's a 
uh, ortho-substituted or, or para-substituted derivative. This certainly gives you a lot of structural information. And then, of course, another recourse is NMR, which is something that's not really been part of a sure. routine uh, drug I know a couple of labs system. that have an NMR, but not too many will have an NMR, which is what your first thing would be, like in a research laboratory, is you first Absolutely. stick it in an NMR. Yeah. In our laboratory, for compounds that are novel that we don't identify through GCMS, in comparison to standards, we do escalate to QTOF analysis mm -hmm. uh, and also to NMR. And using that approach, we've identified now 17 new substances since the beginning of this year, some of them precursors for fentanyl synthesis, but some of them, like the U47 derivatives I mentioned earlier, just brand new compounds. Well, I think this is a very important point here, and I want to kind of highlight it, because our assumption at RTI, and, and in terms of the research work we do and this kind of thing, is that most laboratories are basically doing LCMSMS. And so, you know, they'll rely on a tandem method, basically, to tackle this problem. We also happen to have a QTOF in our lab. And so we, you know, we, we will routinely look at the QTOF if we have an unusual problem, that kind of thing, and realize that it's extraordinarily valuable for this kind of problem. But I don't know, not too many crime laboratories are, are investing in high-resolution mass spectrometry systems. So. Let me just lay this out. I mean, do you think that that's the trend that's going to have to happen in order for us to be able to, to keep up with this particular set of issues? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great point. There is a trend, certainly in toxicology, not so much in drug chemistry, towards LCMSMS. That has the advantage over GCMS of increased sensitivity, shorter run times, but the important difference is that it is a targeted technique. So when you do LCMSMS, by and large, you're only going to see things that you are looking for. You've told it what transitions to look for. You have a list of compounds that are part of your scope, and if they're in there, it'll find it. But if you have something in there that doesn't have the transitions in your acquisition parameters, you're going to be blind to it. Uh, in GCMS, if you had something in there that you didn't know what it was, there was still a peak there, so you knew there was something there that ought to be investigated. Right, right that's true. But we've come full circle, if you like, back with uh, QTOF, to being able to do non-targeted acquisition. So the acquisition collects information on everything that is in that extract. It may be something we don't know exists or something we've never seen before or something that's not in our, our database, but the data is acquired. And uh, what we're currently doing, which we're really excited about uh, in our laboratory, is uh, retrospective data mining of QTOF data. So now we can acquire the full data file on all of these extracts we're testing. We can query it for the compounds we know are of concern today. But if uh, three months from now or six months from now we learn about a new compound, we can go back and re-query all of the data that we previously acquired and figure out when these compounds first started showing up. So effectively what was patient zero for this uh, brand new U47 derivative. Mm -hmm. uh, it may be sitting in our data vault somewhere. Uh, we just didn't know to look for it, but now we can go back and find out which of these previously tested samples might have been positive for that. Well, yeah, and to be fair, QTOF is probably a better approach than even NMR, in the sense that if you're looking at complex mixtures, the talk is going to be much better at deconvolving that than any NMR will. Absolutely, and also for uh, purposes of, for toxicology type cases, you typically don't have enough material to be able to run an NMR. Mm -hmm. Anyway, you need of the order of milligrams, and usually in, in toxicology cases, we're dealing with nanograms of material. So, you know, a lot of what we're talking about here has been on the opioids and, 
and that kind of thing. But the, there are a lot of other novel psychoactives out there that are emerging, and, and you mentioned at least two of those, uh, the cannabinoids and the cathinones. It seems like there's an awful lot more uh, recreational use of LSD and related compounds out there now. Uh, that's emerging and so we can also expect probably that area to be much and especially now that vaping is a thing right I mean uh, is this same kind of philosophy or the same kind of approach you think going to be kind of raised with some of these other compounds as well I mean it's basically the same problem isn't it yeah but practically any compound can be smoked and in fact Vaping is an even more effective way of getting some of these more temperature labile compounds into your system. I would say that at present, well, in our cease drug casework, we don't see that, that many e-liquids coming in. Mm -hmm. But I certainly read the literature and I've seen some of the presentations uh, from some of our colleagues about synthetic cannabinoids in some of these vaping liquids. So one of the advantages that we have of having this relationship with you, Barry, is that we can actually get more deep into some of these technical issues. And we're doing a series with you, Knowledge Transfer Events, specifically oriented around this opioid issue and the analytical challenges. Can you give me a quick summary of what to expect from the uh, webinar series that we're doing with you? Sure. So this comes from a collaboration we've had with RTI for uh, over a year now. Around about a year ago, we published uh, review article that looked at the prevalence of uh, case reports of adverse events from a large range of synthetic drugs that occurred between 2013 and 2016. So it was an, an attempt to kind of set the baseline and understand for the compounds we knew about at that time, what their toxicity was, what kind of combinations they showed up in, what some of the uh, reference ranges were in postmortem uh, casework. And we've developed uh, from that point uh, three knowledge transfer events. The first two deal with more of the analytical focus, so asking the question, first of all, in a, a market that's as dynamic as this, where compounds are changing so frequently, what strategy do you have to keep up with the latest drugs that you're likely to encounter in casework? So everything from monitoring what's being scheduled to reading the, the literature, attending meetings and reviewing the conference proceedings, because many of the things that get presented at conferences never make it into peer-reviewed literature, but there's nonetheless uh, very valuable sources of information. We look at what standard reference materials the vendors are producing. We talk to our international colleagues. We also monitor uh, activity in drug user forums online mm -hmm. uh, to see what uh, new drugs people are talking about, what's being talked up, what's trending. So based on all of that information, we make decisions about what to expand our scope of analysis to include. So we're talking about uh, those strategies, ways to keep up and keep current with what you're likely to encounter in casework. We'll talk about screening approaches uh, and introduce some of the advantages of moving to a TOF or QTOF platform for drug screening and toxicology. Also, what the benefits of uh, various different confirmatory platforms are. Uh, the second webinar is focused more on validation. So what's the best way and most efficient way to perform uh, what would have been a SWIG talks validation, but now what's likely to be uh, an OSAC compliant right, uh, method validation, which is particularly challenging for these drugs because the menu is changing all the time. So no lab has the resources to go back and completely revalidate methods if every time you add a new substance to it. So there are ways to be more efficient in uh, incremental validation to methods. So we'll cover that in the second webinar. The third one uh, deals more with the interpretive aspects. So going back to that original review article in Journal of Analytical Toxicology, 
we're going to talk about strategies for trying to understand the potency and potentially the toxicity of many of these novel compounds when we have limited reference data in the published literature uh, so that you can give advice as a toxicologist to somebody interpreting these results, whether it's clinical, frankly, or whether it's uh, post-mortem. Sure. Now that's all excellent work, and we look forward to having those webinars. We're going to release this podcast, and so people who come to the podcast page will be directed to the uh, webinars either when they're live or when they're archived, and we're also going to pull those together in a single web page so everyone can have uh, the access to the information. I think it's very important, and I think that uh, a lot of labs are going to have some very tough decisions to make in terms of, I think it's beyond instruments too, it's also about training and the kinds of individuals that you're bringing in and, and, and having them have the ability to uh, get the, the background they need to do these interpretation problems well. I think that's absolutely true. Uh, I referenced earlier some of the, the transition of laboratories to GCMS and then we talked about transitioning to more LCMS and advanced uh, fragmentation techniques. I think in the forensic community we've gotten very comfortable with the way the landscape of the drug market was. We were relying on GCMS. It was more or less a black box technique. The libraries would answer most questions for us. But in the world of designer drugs and novel psychoactive substances, there really is a need to understand the chemistry, uh, not just from the point of view of what drug classes new substances might belong to or what their activity might be, but also figuring out structure based on all of the different analytical characteristics that you've, uh, you've identified, including GCMS, um, uh, high resolution mass spectrometry, and ultimately NMR truly is a brave new world in which we live with apologies to Aldous Huxley. Yes, it uh, is. <laughs> if only it were only SOMA. But Barry, it was very good to have you on the Just Science podcast. Very, very much appreciate your perspective and, and excellent, excellent input for, uh, for the community. My pleasure. Thanks. So for those also listening, make sure you uh, tune into the webinars. Make sure you also like us on whichever podcast page that you uh, happen to be accessing. Give us a nice solid review and please tell your friends and colleagues about the Just Science podcast and all the other knowledge transfer products that are available from NIJ's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. And thank you for listening in today. Next week, Just Science talks with Dr. Paul Speaker about the stress and financial burden crime labs are facing because of the opioid epidemic. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. <laughs>